the question is, should you publish something where you think they're going wrong? And that's where the question is, is it interesting and challenging? Not just provocative in the sense of shocking or something, but is it likely to make you, the reader, um, think more deeply and more seriously about your own convictions? That's Johnny Thacker, co-founding editor of The Point magazine, talking about some of the editorial positions and priorities of his publication. This week, as an installment in our end-of-the-year retrospective series of episodes, we're going to hear from Johnny, as well as from Kate Zaloom, co-founding editor of Public Books. I talked with Johnny and Kate at the beginning of the year. Both Johnny and Kate co-founded publications that exist somewhere between the Academy and the world of cultural criticism. Both of their publications are young. Jo- Johnny, excuse me, co-founded his in 2008, Kate hers in 2012. Um, Both their publications also have risen to prominence in what seems like, or what feels like, a new renaissance in little magazines. We're going to hear from Johnny Thacker as well as Kate Zulum about what they've hoped their publications could contribute to this moment. We'll also hear about how their publications really stand out, what they do that other magazines and publications really don't or can't do. From Johnny, we'll hear about the importance he and his fellow editors place on bringing a kind of humanistic thinking or a kind of broadly philosophical approach to cultural criticism. From Kate, we'll hear about the way in which her publication has sought to bring more academics, more scholars into cultural criticism in order to bring to bear many recent advances in scholarship on public debate. In many ways, our two guests and their publications represent something that I think is exciting and really interesting about this cultural moment. The fact that more academics, for a variety of reasons, are becoming interested in and able to work as cultural critics. In a few moments, we'll hear from Kate Zaloom. Before that, we're going to hear right now from Johnny Thacker, who describes the gap that the points kind of writing, its broadly humanistic, philosophical approach to cultural criticism, fills in the world of magazine writing and academic publishing. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. You have some magazines which take up topics that are of everyday interest uh, and interest about, you know, contemporary culture. They're of interest to to us as we think about our lives in contemporary culture. And I I would say a magazine like The Atlantic is a perfect instance of this. There are plenty of articles which which take up things like what it would be to date today, like Mm -hmm. what, what dating is today or what parenting is today, that type of thing. But the way they actually treat them is not typically humanistic. You don't really have the sense of the author of the article wrestling with ideas uh, and, and kind of bouncing arguments back and forth and trying to, trying to really come out uh, um, the wiser. What you have is typically some kind of... Um, search for illumination by going to various uh, experts mm. like psychologists and uh, economists and so on. Uh, like, so so-and-so is <laughs> professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University suggests that uh, people frequently find me- meaning in relationships <laughs> and X, Y, Z, or, you know, it's all kind of third personal in a sense. It, it, it's not really um, what we would think of as being the, the examined life. 
Um, so that's one kind of magazine that we 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 would take something from, but really depart from. And then you have these magazines like um, Boston Review, uh, where they're they're trying to sort of popularize the work of academics. So you read the Boston Review, and you you you're stimulated to some degree, but you're always stimulated really in the way of thinking well, I wish I could go and read the real thing uh, because, you know, it's in the real, it's in the actual books that are being referred to that the, the thought is being done. The, the essays themselves, well, they're not really proper essays mm-hmm. in some sense. They're sort of reports. Um, they're, they're simplifications. They're lectures. Um, they're not actually the site of thought itself. Uh, whereas what we were looking to do, uh, whether or not we've succeeded is obviously another question, but what, what we were looking to do is to have a space where the reader really feels invited into a process of thought that's taking place in this essay, rather than just kind of uh, the essay being a sort of report from a report about what work has been done in like the lab, as it were, like mm-hmm. the lab of real thought at the university level. So that's the second kind of magazine. And then probably just a third and final kind of magazine would be uh, ones which are, um, well, we've already sort of alluded to them, but much more directly uh, political and um, self-consciously leftist for the most part. And um, I mean, there's a whole array of of those. Yeah. yeah. For instance, Um, like, like which magazines would immediately come to mind for you? Well, immediately, I would say the uh, the New Inquiry, the Jacobin mm. Descent, uh, the Nation, N plus One. Um, I mean, I'm not in any particular order, I should say. And obviously, they're all they're all different. I mean, there's a huge difference between, say, N plus One, which is a literary magazine, and Jacobin, which is a uh, really a a political entity um, in in its fundamental core. Um, you know, they wouldn't have articles on Jacobin about uh, about David Foster Wallace, for right. example, which M plus one would. Uh, but there is something in common there with, with these magazines, which is that they do tend to like to see themselves sort of on the right side of history or something like that. Like they, they want to see themselves as as political actors in a way where that involves being on one side rather than the other so sort of yeah taking sides as as an editorial group and um therefore keeping out other things like the role of the editor is always to decide what what comes in and what goes out and one criterion for those magazines is always um what what do we um agree with politically and you know that's that's perfectly valid obviously that's um that's a uh, very laudable goal in many ways and I, I actually have zero problem with the with the existence or flourishing of those magazines especially when you get it in its pure form like like jacobin where they do a really good job and they know exactly what they're doing but that's not what we're doing and we we think there's a space for something else a, mag- a space for a magazine which isn't as it were like centered on an ideal reader who is in there maybe late 20s living in brooklyn Mm -hmm. taking themselves to be a certain kind of leftist 
Um, there's a for us, there's a kind of closed-mindedness in that in that um, ambition to serve just that that demographic. There's a kind of um, self-deception as well because um, there there is a sort of self-congratulation uh, that can creep into the kind of politics where uh, that you produce when you're when you're aiming at such a narrow audience. There's a parochialism, if you like, and we kind of wanted to produce a magazine that stood back from the contemporary scene uh, and didn't try and sort of be like setting the agenda for the literary scene or the political scene or what you should believe about this, what you should believe about that, uh, but rather kind of took a step back and was more philosophical uh, in a in a sort of loose sense of that term. Um, yeah, so we wanted to be more philosophical mm-hmm. than either political or trendy or, or, or that kind of thing. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, so as, as you've said, though the point doesn't itself take a political, a de- definite political stance, the editors surely have, have political commitments of their own. I'm sort of wondering, in your position as an editor, how do you separate the political commitment or whatever political view a writer is advancing in her essay, say, from the intellectual rigorousness of her work. I, ideally, those two things could be separated. As, as an editor, you would want to approach an article with that kind of mindset if you were working for Point. But what? Mm. H- how do you do that, I guess is my question. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's tough. Obviously, one thing that people would say in response to what I said is, look, if you're if you're uh, if if you're really thinking about things, then you end up um, you end up with political views, right. and those views are bound to color the way that you uh, you interpret what's good or bad. So that you know, it's people might even go so far as to say, well, look, we would love to publish intelligent conservative writing. It's just that there isn't any. Right. Uh, you know, people will say that kind of thing sometimes. I mean, frankly, it, it, it's absurd. Uh, but at the same time, you can see the underlying logic of it. Um, because if we're publishing an article by someone that uh, has a different political view from us, and I'm not, by the way, suggesting that the three of us actually have the same political mm-hmm. opinions either. But if if you're if you're faced with an article that has a different um, uh, view from your own, it's not just a different perspective. It's not relativist like that. It you you think they're wrong. I mean, you know, you think there's a point at which they're going wrong. Um, but the question is, should should you publish something where you think they're going wrong? And that's where the question is: Is it interesting? and challenging, not just provocative in the sense of, you know, shocking or something, but does it actually, does it actually make you, is it likely to make you, the reader, um, think more deeply and more seriously about your own convictions? Though sometimes we want to publish things that um, are, as I said earlier, just serious um, serious treatments of views that you might otherwise be tempted to dismiss. Mm-hmm. So it's much worse for us, actually, if an article is similar to our view, has uh, propounds views that are similar to our own, that isn't actually interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not challenging, it's not 
Um, it relies on kind of cliches, secondhand thoughts. Um, it doesn't really uh, subject itself to the rigors of of uh, real thought and you know objections and so on. Um, and sometimes a view can be serious in that kind of way, or an article can be serious in that kind of way, without um, without being something that you agree with. That was Johnny Thacker. Now we'll hear from Kate Zaloom, co-founder of Public Books. We'll drop into the interview right where Kate starts to talk about why she and her fellow editor, Sharon Marcus, a professor of literature at Columbia, decided to start a publication. Thanks for listening. So in 2012, Sharon and I, uh, who knew each other from academic circles, um, were talking and we realized that we had many of the same concerns about our reading lives outside of our own narrow academic specialties. I'm an economic anthropologist. Sharon is a uh, a literary critic and scholar. Uh, And uh, when we wanted to go looking for ideas that were beyond what we did in our uh, in our regular scholarly lives, we were having more and more trouble finding the kinds of discussions that we wanted, discussions that are in-depth, um, that bring together a diversity of voices, and that really inform our own perspectives with a kind of expertise that we would never be able to access uh, ourselves. Mm. So we looked around, this was in 2012, and we saw a landscape where those kinds of discussions um, were actually pulling back. I mean, that, this was in internet years, of course, the four or so years in between uh, seemed like an eon. But uh, in 2012, the major newspapers were rolling back their literature uh, reviews, closing down book review sections. And in places like the New York Times, for instance, Sharon and I felt that the coverage was mostly of a kind of evaluative perspective, you know, whether or not we should like a book and why, um, which was not really what we wanted. We wanted bigger conversations. And in what we felt like should be the um, and, and gold standard for these sorts of in-depth essays that are written by experts, the New York Review of Books, we really saw a, a, a very um, narrow range of voices being offered um, and a, uh, a set of uh, authors who, who really um, were, were on the older end, um, who were mostly white men mm. and, uh, and who represented uh, what I like to think of as the kind of loyal dissent perspective um, on politics and, what, what do you, and even what do you on mean academic that? ideas. Uh, that that they are pe- people like Paul Krugman and George Soros who have who already occupy platforms uh, either, you know, say in the New York Times or the, the platform that George Soros has as a you know major um, capitalist philanthropist uh, who want to kind of fix the broken system, but who aren't necessarily giving us 
a, uh, a completely new perspective on, um, on, on the problems that, that they address. Um, so in other words, I, I felt and Sharon felt that there was really a place for discussing much more cutting edge ideas. So that's that's really interesting. I have a, a number of questions about a, lo- a lot of what you just said. I guess so. Uh, focusing just for the moment on these initial conversations you had with Sharon Marcus about this journal and about your critique of kind of the mainstream debate going on in most um, newspapers. Uh, I guess my first question is: Did did you have a sense, as well as Professor Marcus, did 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 you two have a sense that perhaps as scholars you wanted? A wider audience you wanted to present you, you say cutting edge ideas but i believe your website also says cutting edge scholarly ideas did, did you want to bring scholarship and the work that scholars in particular of diverse backgrounds were doing uh to a wider audience yes absolutely we both wanted to bring scholarly ideas that were coming um from obviously the academy um to a wider audience and we wanted to be involved in helping scholars learn how to to write for mm. a more public audience which is a which is just something that requires you know focus and practice um, so we we both wanted to create a space where scholarly ideas could go public um, and uh, and we also wanted to be involved in helping this next generation of uh, public scholars or public intellectuals make it out there. Uh, mm-hmm. We feel like there, are, there just was a huge demand from the academy to be, to be writing and addressing big ideas and big problems in the world, but not nearly enough outlets to make that possible. So I, I have some questions about what it would mean for a scholar to write for the general public. And actually, I'll, I'll bring those up in a minute. For now, um, I'm hoping just to dig in a bit to the content of public books. So if, if you listeners uh, get on the website, I think one of the elements that's most striking uh, about public books um, is that some of the sections of the journal aren't really the ones you'd see in a magazine. Certainly, you wouldn't see them as sections in, say, the, the New York Times uh, for one, they seem geared to issues or topics that scholars and writers might have only recently really started to think about in earnest and en masse. For instance, you have sections committed to food and the environment, as well as to um, global black history. Those are just two, I mm-hmm. think, e- exemplary ones. Why did these sections in particular develop? Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're making a, a really um, astute observation about what we're trying to do at public books that that there are perspectives that are developing in the academy that we wanted to bring forward. So, um, so the the idea, particularly of uh, of food and the environment, is that that there is an absolute explosion of interest in and research on those topics in fields from in the academy from end to end from um from literature scholars that are interested in analyzing novels from an environmental perspective to anthropologists who are studying 
what happens uh, in environments when they're when they're changing. Um, to of course, uh, of course, people in the biological sciences who uh, who's, who've been doing that for decades. Um, so when we're thinking about what we want to put forward in the in the magazine as a topic, we try to think about what are the emerging interests. Mm. What are the things that are kind of coming together now that are going to shape the next, say. 10 years of, of scholarship and how can we make that that change that vitality uh, obvious and uh, and interesting to a general readership and for us the the environment was was clearly part of that um, and also we want to take uh, subjects that everyone is interested in like food which which we see as absolutely connected to the environment um, uh, and make those part of the scholarly mission and agenda I guess one thing I've been wondering because there is there is a lot of excitement uh, in the academy I think especially among younger scholars about the existence the rise in existence of places uh, and publications like public books. And it does make me wonder um, whether uh, the line, the distinction between purely academic publishing and sort of popular publishing will begin to blur. And I'm wondering whether that's a good thing. I'm wondering what new kinds of knowledge can be produced if that line begins to blur a bit more. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, whether you've kind of committed a lot of thoughts about this and whether you have um, an, an opinion about it. It's a very good question, and Public Books is absolutely out to blur that line <laughs> a bit. But we don't currently have a lot of a, a lot of publishing organs that do that. I mean, there are, there are certainly there are certainly some, but Public Books is uh, among um, you know the handful that that do. Uh, I see the opportunity is, as you say, one that is not only about kind of publicizing knowledge, bringing knowledge to a public, uh, a wide public of, of readers, but also of, of changing the way that um, that knowledge can be produced itself. And I think about that in two different ways. One is that when, when we publish for, for general readers, we're also publishing for our colleagues in different fields who may not know at all what is happening in anthropology, say, or in history or in literary studies. By writing for general readers, we can actually, we can actually foment some cross-disciplinary perspectives mm. too. I think that that's, uh, that's very important. And many of our reviews actually bring together Books that are from very um, from quite different perspectives. From I'm uh, I'm thinking of of one piece now that that looked at writings on animal experience that brought together works in political philosophy on novels and uh, and on and and on sociology to create a kind of review that, uh, that shows the kind of synthetic imagination that is possible when we bring together perspectives from across the academy and even outside of the academy.
Another uh, another element of this line blurring that that you mentioned is that it's a way for scholars to get feedback from readers who are not necessarily in the academy mm. to see what interests people, to see what hooks them, to see what bores them, to to try to really understand uh, what their what messages, um, what ideas are landing and resonating with others that that they wouldn't otherwise be in conversation with. Mm. So so it seems like a journal such as Public Books couldn't really exist without the internet, in large part because of the things you were just mentioning. Uh, your writers are primarily scholars, and before the internet, it would be really absurd to expect a scholar, or really anyone who isn't a journalist, to be up to date about the many things going on in the world, and to comment on those things while bringing to bear the immensity of their own academic work and knowledge, and then also be responsive to feedback about the way they're commenting on those things that, you know, that's a lot of work mm -hmm. and, it, and it requires the, the immediate communication, um, that, that the internet provides. So this all makes me think that perhaps there's a new category of public intellectual emerging, uh, one that's not so tweedy or dependent on the thinker being plugged into the old sort of Lionel Trilling, New York intellectual scene, but mm -hmm. one that, as you mentioned, earlier in our conversation, one that's more democratic and would allow for different kinds of voices from different uh, backgrounds and identities and universities and regions. So is, is that something that you think about? Is that something that you're hoping at Public Books to cultivate? Absolutely. I, I think that the, that the internet is an amazing opportunity to democratize scholarly knowledge. And uh, I think it's it just provides an opportunity to change the to change the expectations that readers have around who is going to be writing. I mean, as we change the medium, we can actually change the kind of substance, too, of what intellectual life looks like, that intellectual life can, you know, um, have a female face mm -hmm. more than half the time. Uh, the, that intellectual life can be, um, you know, robust robustly informed by, by perspectives of black scholars and other scholars of, of color. Um, you know, we really make it a key part of our mission to cultivate uh, writers and cultivate an intellectual sphere where, where that kind of diversity is the expectation that there, that when, um, when readers go to other outlets, we hope that they notice that that those um, that those perspectives are are missing. So we really do actively cultivate that idea that that um, that the people who should be contributing to intellectual life um, are all over the country and the world that come from different perspectives that come from different kinds of communities and universities that come from community colleges as well as from the Ivy League. Um, that come from public universities and private universities. I mean, why would we ever restrict the, um, the intellectual sphere to uh, a narrow range of, of people? Um, we, we really make that uh, an absolutely central part of our mission. And I think it's part of the possibility that the Internet gives us, not that it's always um, in any way uh, brought to life, but we hope that we can be a part of doing that. That was Johnny Thacker and Kate Zaloom. 
Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit howenstein.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.